Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. That's not quite as lively as our song last month, but uh, nevertheless, that is Crispin Hellion Glover with his version of Ben from the movie Willard, a remake from 2003. With that, we will call this month's meeting to order. Welcome to the Classic Horrors Club podcast. I'm Jeff Owens from Classic Horrors Club. And this is Richard Chamberlain from Kansas City Cinephile and Monster Movie Kid. Before we get started, I have quite a bit of old business to go over. We raised a lot of questions last week that we couldn't really answer. So uh, the first one was we were had a momentary brain lapse and didn't know what the last AIP Edgar Allan Poe film was. You were right, Richard. It was Murders in the Rue Morgue in 1971. 
So Oblong Box uh, was the one before that. We kind of discounted a night with Edgar Allan Poe that, that Vincent Price did, which was a stage showing. But 71, Murders in the Rue Morgue, was uh, the last Poe film from AIP. We also wondered if in the movie The Oblong Box, Vincent Price and Christopher Lee appeared in a scene together. I thought that they did, but I couldn't recall at the time. And in fact, they did sort of. It was the scene where Vincent Price walks in and finds Christopher Lee's dead body. Ah, okay. So, technically, they were in a scene together, although they did not exchange any uh, speech or at looks or actions or anything. Was it his actual body or was it a stand-in? I don't know. It looked like his body. Looked like his it's, body? Yeah, it must have been. And it wasn't a lingering shot. I don't think he had to hold his breath very long or anything. <laughs> so... Uh, we also wondered um, if Russ Jones wrote the Waxworks short story on which the segment in The House of Drip Blood was based. We understood on one hand that the all of the stories were based on Robert Block stories, but this name Russ Jones popped up. And I did verify, I found that the contents of the magazine that the story was originally published in 1939. It was Robert Block. And just to verify that, this Russ Jones fellow was not born until 1942. Therefore, I'm pretty sure he didn't write that original story, Waxworks. I'm not sure where he came in. He must have been an additional writer to punch up the script or something for um, The House That Dripped Blood. That would seem to imply that Wikipedia was wrong. (laughs) I am shocked by that. Absolutely shocked. Don't know what to say. My, (laughs) My hopes and dreams are crushed. You were uh, not sure on what one of the stars from The House of Drip Blood, who he played in Doctor Who. And I did find out a little more information. The actor is John Bennett, and he was in two arcs in the mid-70s. In 1974, he played General Finch in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Oh, okay, yes. Yeah, that's the, the final season for Pertwee. And by that point... The Doctor had regained his ability to time travel. He was leaving Earth more. So the Earthbound stories were becoming a little less frequent. And and that particular season, that was the one big story set on on Earth, actually. It's a time travel dinosaurs taking over London type story with some really bad special effects on the dinosaurs. But, okay, yes, yes, he was the pseudo bad guy in that one, actually. And he also was in the arc in 1977, The Talons of Wing Chang, playing La Hizin Chang. Which I think I mentioned that story as, as something that was a possibility in that time period. So, okay. I also wanted to just bring up a minute, um, and this will kind of segue into our show today, but we had talked about the first time we had seen some of these movies in the late 60s, early 70s, and I was pretty confident that there was something that CBS did, like a movie of the week or something, and I I did some research, and and indeed, there was the CBS late movie on Friday nights. This was a time when CBS didn't have a late night talk show. There was no David Letterman or Stephen Colbert, no Tonight Show equivalent. And on Friday nights, they would show a movie. It, it may have been more than just Friday. But on Fridays in, the, in 1973, it became where almost every movie was a horror movie. In fact, it was an AIP, Amicus, or Hammer movie. Yeah. So I'm pretty confident that's where the first time I saw many of these movies that, that we're going to talk about from the 70s. I, I know I remember seeing Abominable Dr. Fives because they played the commercial endlessly, and it was the scene where he spins the telescope. I don't know if it was in the news 
30 minutes before it started or if it was in the primetime programming, but I almost remember that commercial better than I remember the movie. So They would play a lot of shows, I remember, like Monday through Thursday, they would play primetime shows that were like sometimes still on television. They'd play like shows from the first season, like Canon, Hawaii Five-0. They renamed Hawaii Five-0 McGarrett so as not to confuse the episodes they were playing as to what was being played on television at the same time. So, hmm. you know, they would also do like the Jeffersons and and shows like Alice and stuff. They would do some some other shows that hadn't quite hit syndication yet and play them in late night. And eventually the, the new Avengers, for example, uh, that's how it was originally seen in the United States was through the late movie. Uh, and but yeah, Friday nights. That's where, in fact, Kolchak the Night Stalker was a regular feature. Yes, and and that it was often get paired with a movie. They would run Friday nights. They would do Kolchak followed by, you know, Frankenstein must be destroyed or something. I yeah, fond memories of watching CBS late movie. Yes, and I do want to recommend a website where I got this information. DVD Drive In. It's a still going website. I don't know if you've ever visited it. I have. Pretty yeah. cool. They have the complete schedule of the movies that they played. Oh, I didn't realize they had that on there. Yeah, and this is where the segue lies that on April 25th, 1975, they played Willard. Oddly, two months before that, February 21st, 75, they played Ben. So they played the sequel before the original. And I know I saw Ben in the theaters, but I think this may have been where I first saw Willard was on the CBS late movie. I, you know, Willard and Ben, first time viewings for me. Uh, and that's the movies we're talking about this yes, week. I don't coincidentally. Think, coincidentally. Did, do you have any other old business or, to bring up from last time? Or? That is, that's the, that's, no, I think you covered it. I, I, that's, uh, thank you for following up on that. And, and nice to know, obviously, he's partially right on Doctor. I forgot about Invasion of the Dinosaurs that time. I knew that it had to be one of the earthbound stories with the military, which was, the military was featured a lot in the early 70s with the unit. But then by the time you get to the end of the Pertwee era, and then introducing then the next Doctor, which was the fourth Doctor, Tom Baker, the Earthbound stories had less to do with the military. And if you were on Earth, then it was usually just regular characters and stuff. The military was being phased out by the... Second season of Tom Baker, the military was an afterthought and was wouldn't really be a regular part of the show again, really, for the rest of the run. If any military, it would be one-off episodes. But in the early 70s, it was definitely a quarter-mass feel with, with Pertwee being stuck on Earth and, and being scientific advisor for UNIT, United Nations Intelligence Task Force, and, and a lot of Earthbound military stories. Now, I have a question before we start. Are you feeling good? Did you get everything out of your system for Doctor Who? Because I understand that we are not going to have any references that we know of through the rest of the episode. I, I, I looked for Doctor Who references for Willard and Ben. I did not come across any. There may be some, you know, obscure set designer or cameraman, but uh, but fear not, there are Star Trek references. So at least I'm going to get one of my, my nerd things out of the way. So I'm good for Doctor Who. Star Trek will be coming up. You know, I think I'd be a little disappointed if you can't find something that just comes up during conversation. So um, we'll see. But if not, you, you got to have your say here. So I was actually surprised by one of the things when we were talking about uh, uh, Willard and, and get into that and some of the cast. I was I, I thought, you know, it was like this one guy looked familiar. I couldn't quite place him. And then looking in the credits and realized, okay, it was that guy. Because a lot of these, when we go through the credits... 
there's a lot of 1960s, 70s television actors that appear in both Willard and Ben. There's a lot of character actors. And so a lot of familiar faces that you don't know who they are. But if you've seen any television from the 60s and 70s, you've seen most of the cast of Willard and Ben. Or if you've seen The Poseidon Adventure. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, so before we get into the movies, let's uh, do like we do. What was the environment like, the pop culture and social and political environment in uh, we do in 1972? We're going to focus on 72 because we talked about 1971 last month, which is the year that Willard came out. Ben came out in 72. So let's take a look at 72. Um, First off, movies released in 72. A lot of, again, some familiar titles. Uh, I'm just kind of mixing these up a little bit. From the horror genre, we had Beware the Blob, starring Larry Hagman. I have never seen Beware the Blob. Have you? I have. Two questions. Was that a TV movie or was it theatrical? And second, I know Larry Hagman directed it. Was he in it also? Uh, he, I think he had a small bit part in it. And I believe it was theatrical. Okay. Yeah, it showed up on the theatrical mm-hmm. list that I, I looked at. Uh, I've never seen it. Yeah, it's been years. I I know that it's really not that good from everything I've I've read about it. Of course, we have the uh, cult classic Blackula came out in 72. Um, We had the fourth film in the Apes franchise, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. We had Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things. Of course, Vincent Price, Dr. Fives Rises Again. Fritz the Cat? Is that horrific? I don't know. Depends on your point of view. Last House on the Left, which is truly horrific. Legend of Boggy Creek, which is fun, if, if not a little dated, I think, in some regards. Silent Running, which is a sci-fi classic with Bruce Stern. Thing with Two Heads, which is not a classic. <laughs> of course, then Clockwork Orange, which is a classic. A few non-genre films. Uh, Cabaret was a huge hit. Deliverance, which is still uh, a legendary film. Little flick called The Godfather. You might have heard of that one. Jeremiah Johnson. Uh, the Poseidon Adventure, oh, I, which I believe Mr. Ernest Borgnine starred in, if I'm correct. Uh, Superfly, going with the uh, black exploitation genre. Sean Connery's next to last film is James Bond. His last film in the official franchise, Diamonds Are Forever. It was his return after leaving, and then George Lazenby came in for one film. They went ahead and brought Sean Connery back for the last film in the proper franchise. He would return one more time in uh, 83 with Never Say Never Again, which is not officially part of the Bond franchise. Uh, but that's what was playing in the uh, in the box office. Some uh, just kind of price perspectives. You could buy a pair of Wrangler jeans for $12. Ground beef was $0.98 cents a pound. Gas was $0.55 cents a gallon. You could buy a brand new Ford Pinto for $2,078, and you could buy the average new house cost was $27,500. Wow. So for less than $30,000, you could uh, buy a brand new car and a brand new house. We had a uh, presidential election, and Richard Nixon won the uh, election, became president in 1972, and of course... This was also the start of Watergate and the downfall of Nixon. So, of course, we have uh, life kind of repeating itself. And uh, we had, uh, which I found this interesting, again, showing how as much things change, they stay the same. We had the Munich Olympics terrorist attack. 
in which 11 Israel uh, athletes were murdered by Arab gunmen on September 6th. Some of the popular toys of the year, Barbie, the Easy Bake Oven, and Fisher Price Farms. The last U.S. ground troops left Vietnam. The Equal Rights Amendment was passed. A uh, little-known channel called HBO was launched in 1972 as a subscription-only service, I believe in the New York area. Uh, Digital watches were introduced. We had uh, the Volkswagen Beetle became the most popular car ever sold, with an excess of 15 million sold. Atari kicked off its first generation of video games with Pong. Apollo 17 and the last men to walk on the moon, uh, which were Harrison Schmidt and Eugene Cernan. I had never heard of either one of those, but they're the last two to walk on the moon. <laughs> and segueing, of course, Richard Nixon ordered the start of the space shuttle program in 1972. Popular music, we had Don McLean's American Pie, uh, artists like Led Zeppelin, the Moody Blues, David Bowie, and yes, Michael Jackson and Ben. Um, so that's what was going on in the world in 1972. Hmm. I'm going to share a horrible story here. We can cut it out if you want me to. But we had a Volkswagen Beagle Beetle probably about this time. It was a light blue convertible. And I wasn't driving yet. But one night it was stolen from the driveway. And they found it the next day down the block. This is where it gets horrible. Someone had taken it and they had tied a cat to it and driven around. Oh so there was a dead cat behind the, the Volkswagen. Wow. So for whatever that's worth. Well, I thought know, of that. I haven't thought honestly, of that in years. It, 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 you know, cats, rats, everything kind of ties in together. We're not, we'll keep the story in. Yeah, yeah, it could have been. It could have been Willard or the creepy Danny kid. Maybe he grew up and became a cat terrorist. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, it would certainly go with the theme of the uh, two very little bizarre flicks we're talking about this week. Yeah, and I want to add, and tell me if we should talk about it later, but talking about the era, sort of the impact that Willard had, uh, w- would we talk about that during the movie? or like the, the Because well, what I'm getting at is it was the first really, well, it was a, a couple things. One was what they call a turn-of-the-worm revenge fantasy, yeah. because that's you've got your kid that's put upon and going through some type of bullying or strife, and he chooses a method to strike back. Or has a special talent, I guess in this case he's got the talent of training rats. So that started a whole slew of movies. Carrie, Ruby, Patrick, and coincidentally they all have single first names. So um, I believe Willard really was one of the first ones to do that. And on top of that, it combined the nature gone wild, eco-horror type movie where there are animals or nature involved. Yeah, a whole slew of those movies yeah, in the those, 70s, from those came Grizzly after to... Frogs, killer bees, bug, rattlers. Well, and, and later on in the, in the show, we'll talk about uh, director Bert I. Gordon, who is going to be the subject of next month's. He did a couple of films in the late 70s, Food of the Gods and Empire of the Ants. Uh, Food of the Gods, which I believe were rats, giant rats, if I recall. And, of course, Empire of the Ants had ants in it. So, um, yeah, so this was the start of... A, and that was... A, Throughout the 70s, that whole genre of nature run amok was started by, by Willard. So, yeah, and it uh, was apparently very successful at the box office and caused a sequel within a year after that. We'll, we'll get into all that. Let's play the trailer for Willard, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Sounds good. Willard! This is Willard, and these are his friends, Ben and Socrates. I'm going to have a big surprise tomorrow. 
Willard takes good care of them. What's that in your pocket? There's something in your pocket! And they will do anything for Willard. Walter, please, Walter, there's something outside the door. My God, look at the rats. Mr. Martin, I have a number of things to tell you. First, you stole the business from my father. And second, it killed my mother. She died this morning, Willard, at 942 in my arms. And third, you're trying to ruin me. You hold up my sales department or even my shipping department one more time. Shut up, Willard. You, you made me hate myself. Well, I like myself now. You know, my life has changed now. Two things did it. One was a friend I had named Socrates. And you. nightmares end. Willard begins. should not see alone. Willard Stiles is a mousy young man taken advantage of by his mother, her friends, and his boss, Mr. Martin, ever since his father died and lost the family business. When he befriends a white rat he names Socrates and trains hordes of other rats to do his bidding, he seizes control of his life and uses them to exact mostly harmless revenge. That is, until a fateful encounter late one night at the office. So Richard, I want to know, this was your first time viewing of Willard. How did you like it? I went in very blind on these films. I Clearly, I've been aware of them. I knew what they were about. But I didn't know necessarily the tone of the film. I didn't know, was it going to be horrific? Was it going to be creepy? Was it going to be scary? So I, was, I went in very blind. And... Was starting off with Willard, my initial thought as the movie was progressing was this was one heck of a weird town with a lot of weird people. And this movie was a lot quirkier than I thought it was going to be. And now it clearly took a turn towards the more serious, I think, as, as you get to the final act a little bit. But there was definitely a lot of, with the quirky characters, there was a lot of... of almost comedic moments at times where you just kind of, you had to kind of laugh and think, what in the heck is going on with these people and some of these weird relatives and friends of his moms and stuff? It was, I, I was I was a little surprised at, at the movie. It wasn't as dark as I thought it was going to be. It was, it was definitely a little different. And it doesn't help. I do not like the score of this at all. The music is not no. appropriate. It's happy, cheery music. I felt, I felt like when it was an industrial music. I felt like I was watching some type of uh, of, uh, of of like a film you would see at school, right? You know, where they were showing like 
you know, some type of production industry and, and be the music playing in the background, which I mean, was kind of, it was kind of tied to the production industry as the credits are rolling. You're kind of getting that music. And to me, didn't, didn't fit the movie at all. It, it almost seemed like that. I don't know. I didn't look to the IMDb credits to see who was the behind the score, but I wonder, was it, was it stock music that they used? No, no, no. In fact, it was a very famous composer, Alex North who had done major movies, Streetcar Named Desire, Spartacus, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Did he see the script before he... But he I don't know. That was, I don't know. That it just is, didn't seem to tie in. Yeah, no. It, that, and that's one of the things about Willard. It, well, both movies too, but Willard, it's just contradictory, the tone versus some of the, the style, the music definitely. It's difficult really to determine who a real hero is, it's sort of ambiguous in that way. Yeah, it's been more so than Willard, but even with Willard, a little bit. Willard, I mean, yeah, it's like he clearly is 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 he the hero of the piece? I mean, he kind of kind of turned a little evil towards the end, but then again, he's he's getting revenge against people who were subjugating him. You know, there was definitely you know the character of Al Martin, who is uh, played by Ernest Borgnine. He's the boss of Willard Stiles, who is played by Bruce Davison. Willard is working at the factory that his father owned, but the father, of course, had been essentially cheated out of the the business by uh, Al Martin, Ernest Borgnine's character. And so Willard, of course, was, was basically being bullied constantly by Al Martin. And I think the only reason he had the job where there was a promise that Al Martin made to Willard's mother uh, Henrietta Stiles played wonderfully creepily by Elsa Lanchester uh, nearing the end of her career. She definitely, uh, I think as, as we said before we hit record, there was a definite psycho vibe going on there between Willard and his mother Henrietta. Yeah, and and even I- after, uh, spoiler alert, Henrietta passes away, and he's like in her room and he's holding her picture and he's talking to her. You know, I could, I, I could almost hear Anthony Perkins, you know, mother, mother, you know, going on. It was, I, it, that was, uh, I was actually one of my favorite parts of, of, of the movie was that bizarre relationship. And it definitely some Oedipus stuff going on there at times, but then there was almost hatred. It was definitely a lot of psycho vibes yeah, going on. Yeah, and I want to talk more about that. Do you want to continue with the, the plot, or you want to take a little side route here and talk about that mother-son relationship? Let's, let's, let's dive into the plot, and then okay. let's, let's backtrack. Because right. um, uh, as you just heard, you know, we, we kind of reiterated what the plot was. Uh, you know, essentially, Willard is, is he's a social misfit, right? He's been mother hand by his, his mother and her very weird group of, of friends who are clearly babying him in, in ways. Uh, but yet they, you know, they, they encourage him to go out, but yet then they're putting on party hats like he's a 10-year-old boy. And, and a lot of that seems to be spurred on by Henrietta and Bruce Davison, who plays, who plays Willard. He's a character actor. And that's where we're going to have a lot of character actors in these films. He was more recently. People might recognize him as playing Senator Kelly in the first of the X Men movie uh, movies. He was uh, in the Harry and the Hendersons TV series. Uh, genre credits recently. You might remember him a couple. Well, I guess a couple decades ago now. Tales in the Crypt. He was in the uh, the '90s version of The Outer Limits. 
And, uh, of course, uh, Elsa Lanchester, of course, Bride of Frankenstein, do we even need to mention that? So many other character roles that she would play kind of post-Bride of Frankenstein. I think she's in Mary Poppins. She was in Night Gallery. And Night Gallery is is something, we'll, you know, throughout both these films, you're going to hear me talk about Night Gallery a lot. A lot of these TV character actors appeared in episodes of the Night Gallery. I can't remember the one. I think it's called Green Fingers is the one she appears in. She's, she's living in a house. And uh, Cameron Mitchell plays like the real estate guy who's trying to buy her out. And she's got a green thumb, so to speak. She's, she's into the plants and she doesn't want to sell her house to him. And uh, I remember it ends with, of course, if I remember correctly, he ends up killing her. And uh, I think he buries her in the garden. And, of course, she comes out of the garden. And I remember the hand or something coming out and pulling him down or something. It's been a while since I've seen it. But she was playing her typical kind of – her voice was just – had a certain way of coming across as just kind of eerie and creepy. She uh, – Henriette, of course, eventually passes away. And Willard is – in you know, his he lives in this big old house. And everyone's telling him, just get rid of it. It's falling apart. But Al Martin, his boss, wants the house because he wants to put an apartment complex there. And so he's basically just subjugating Willard to just – he's trying to break him down. And eventually, as the plot begins to turn, he just decides well, he's just going to fire Willard, right? And that's when things really kind of turn into the final act. And Willard finally snaps and utilizes his army of rats that we've been seeing him slowly, methodically building up as the movie progresses – as few rats at the beginning, which was his escape. And of course, rats, as they do, just kind of procreate exponentially. And the army gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And he develops an odd friendship with two of the rats, uh, his favorite being Socrates, who was the white rat. And then, of course, Ben, who was the black rat, uh, good versus evil, so to speak. Willard, of course, has a pseudo love interest in Joan, played by Sandra Locke. Sandra Locke was a longtime partner of Clint Eastwood's. They never were married, but they, she was in, like, I think every movie he did there for a while. Dirty Harry's Sudden Impact film. She was in Outlaw Josie Wales, the Every Which Way But Loose and Every Which Way You Can films. Uh, so a familiar actress that, for that time period. Brandt, who was the sidekick of Al Martin, was somebody I, tr- I, I recognized but couldn't quite place. He was played by Michael Dante. He played in Star Trek. There's the first of the Star Trek references. He played the character of uh, Maab in the second season episode, Friday's Child. Uh, he was also in a lot of other TV shows, including The Six Million Dollar Man. Did you stutter there, or is his name Maab, like M-A-A-B apostrophe? Yeah, it's oh, like okay. Maab. Okay. No, no stutter. No I figured stutter. I'm trying to be funny. You're so. trying to be funny. No, no stutter. One of the character actors that, uh, was the character of Jonathan Farley, um, who was, I think he was a mortician or, or something that he was, at one point, Willard tries to go to to get money to save the house. J. Pat O'Malley is the actor who played him. Countless TV credits. If you watched, again, any television in the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, he was always the, the kind of, he had, a, he had kind of a, a lisp, I think, when he, when he talked, and he was in just countless t- television shows. And, of course, as we mentioned, Ernest Borgnine, 207 film credits and television credits. Genre, of course, around this time period, he was in The Black Hole, the Disney sci-fi film. He was in Deadly Blessing. He was in Devil's Reign, where he played the devil himself. And, of course, uh, 
best known for his television work in McHale's Navy and, of course, the classic Academy Award-winning film, Marty. As the movie progresses, you know, Willard basically begins to uh, to snap. He gets the revenge, and, and these characters all uh, fall on one side of the fence or the other. You either, you know, are on the list or you're, you're you know, the one thing Joan, I think, was, was kind of the one piece that was trying to pull him, kind of keep him grounded in reality, but... When he loses his job and everything kind of snaps, I mean, basically he shoves her out the door as things begin to turn with with the rats. And the the death of Socrates is kind of a turning point because Ben the rat, you're led to believe, blames Willard for the death of Socrates. And that's almost when Ben the rat snaps as well. And they begin to kind of turn on Willard and leads to the final act where... They're they're not necessarily uh, following his his lead anymore. They're now the rats are now following Ben, and you're led to believe that that Willard and Ben, and and they have a way of communicating. And I and I always wondered was that Willard hearing voices in his head, or was there really some type of way that they were communicating? And you get that in Ben too, which we'll talk about between Danny and and Ben. There's this, is Danny just hearing voices or is he really, is there some type of mental telepathy between Willard and, and, and Ben or is it, is it insanity? Is, is Willard hearing voices that he's attributing to Ben? But Ben is clearly leading the rats too. So I always wondered, what do you think? Well, and before I say, uh, that's an interesting point you make about Ben. I've never really caught that, that he might blame Willard for Socrates' death. I, I've kind of always thought when Ben comes in, he's the bad guy to start with and was sort of Socrates' enemy, or not enemy, but rival, I guess. So that's interesting. I, I'll have to ponder that. Uh, as far as the communication, uh, I did start reading The Rat Man's Notebook, which is the book on which Willard was based. And of course, like any book, uh, it's going to give you more insight. Well, any good translation of a book into a movie, the book will give you insight into characters and thought processes that aren't exactly expressed in the different mediums. So there's a couple points as we talk, but as far as the communication goes, the book spends a lot of time talking about the training that he's doing of the rats, and he talks specifically about language and how he knows the rats cannot recognize words, yet he somehow trains them with those words, and it's... I guess I, <laughs> I don't really understand. It's, it's not the tone like, you know, there's the thing if you talk to a dog and you say, I hate you, die, but you say it, I hate you, die, they think it's good and they yeah, wag the their tone, tail. Yeah. It's not exactly like that. It's somewhere in between because the rats do learn and they do learn with the, um, a little bit with the tone. Like if he tells them, come here. And they don't, if he speaks it louder and stronger, they do then come. So, it's a weird thing. Now, going the other way as far as him understanding them, I don't think I don't think there's really anything to that. I mean, if we have pets and we talk to our dogs and, you know, we pretend they're talking to us and we think we know what they're saying, I think that's more of what it is. In fact, that, I, I hear voices when I talk to my dogs. <laughs> uh, what are you talking about? You know, I think it's more a reflection of you know, what he thinks is saying. It's more a reflection of his psychology than any real communication going more of on his there. psychosis that he's got going on right and 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 which again well when we talk about ben i mean danny clearly has some 
some issues as well. <laughs> I think almost more than Willard at times, but yeah, I mean that's a, that's an interesting take on it. I think I I can see I could see that it's more Willard's mental state and and maybe his escape from reality and the, which the rats were at first. It was escape from his his mother hinting mother and and uh, his bad boss and and the crazy friends that, that his mom had. I mean, he didn't have a good life, really. I mean, he it's like he wanted one, but he was surrounded by all this this craziness, and and the rats were his one escape. Yeah, and it's interesting in the book, and I think in the movie too, it's represented in the book. He talks about seeing the rats for the first time, and it's quote: "My first feeling was a mixture of fear and disgust," and I think that's referred in the movie because he is visibly afraid the first time he sees them in the backyard in the cement pond or the fountain or whatever that was but then he throws a, a cake crumb at him and they don't move and he it changes to a smile he becomes sort of amused so uh it's not an a, a, right off the bat he finds a friend it sort of develops I mean, pretty quickly I, I have a question for you to ponder so what do you think willard was like when his father was alive do you think he's always been the the way he is, or do you think that has come about as a result of his father's death and his? Mother? When did did it say when how old Willard was when his dad died? I'm under the impression it was only a couple years prior. I can't imagine that he would have been working there that long at the factory after his father's death. I, you know, I, I'm wondering if it, you know. That's a good question. I mean. Clearly, his current state, a lot of it is because he's taking care of his mom, and, and his mom is just the way she is, you know, very unhealthy relationship. So, I, you know, I, I, I would kind of imagine that, that he's always been maybe, maybe dad was always working and that he was always more of a mama's boy and was always kind of henpecked a little bit, but maybe dad was that escape. Well, I wonder if his father would defend him and, and step up for him. I guess probably not because there's no, he doesn't go through any memories of his father or talk about missing him or anything. So probably, I'd say not. that I'd say there's probably there was probably a limited relationship that he maybe he you know idolized his father because he does get angry when he talks about the fact that his father was kind of cheated out of the company. So I would think that maybe you know dad was busy, so he was definitely kind of mother hand and but maybe dad was that escape. From, he didn't have to necessarily be around mom all the time. Maybe he had some type of relationship with his dad. And so when the dad passed away, maybe the rats were kind of his first escape from getting away from his mom. And so that's he kind of channeled that that love and attention to the rats because that was a way for him to get away from his mom. I suppose the more interesting question is, what was the relationship like between his dad and his mother when his dad was alive that I believe I would work all the time too if I was in that I, who would play the part if you got Elsa uh, Lanchester playing his mom are, are we looking at uh, you know Boris Karloff as the father wouldn't or that have been awesome wow. that would have been interesting so I want to talk about the mom and son relationship a little bit so I don't think she means means him ill will but it's just the way she talks to him I mean at his birthday party, she says, 27 years ago, you were born in pain and agony. <laughs> they didn't know if I were going to live. So she's turned, you know, his birth into her pain. But she's telling him that. And she's, you know, not, oh, it was so joyous when you were born. We were so happy to have you. It's, you caused me pain and agony from the very minute you came out. So that's kind of, 
That's what she says to him on a good day. I think that it, when you, because obviously she's she's not in best of health. I get that she's one of those hypochondriacs. That that I don't I don't imagine that she was ever one of those happy go lucky people. It's like oh woe is me, you know, and, and 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 clearly you get that. It's like oh we gave birth and it was the most horrible experience and pain and agony. And of course now that she's reached a point where she is you know um, sickly. Uh, and she is clearly being taken care of as well by her friends who just seem bizarre in their own right, uh, which I think more has to do with something in the water in this little town. I think that that she was probably always just one of those who just needed attention. And it was, you know, she was just the hypochondriac. She was just always, I think, probably in need. And then maybe that's why dad wasn't so much a figure at home because dad needed the escape and had to go to work exactly. and, and that left him left Willard at home with his mom. And so I get the impression that that's been a, their relationship has been an ongoing thing and it's just been a kind of a slow whittling down of, of Willard as, as a person over the years and bringing him to the point where he finds solace in the form of rats. Yeah. And he's, she says later to him, the only evidence of my struggle with the world is you. So, uh, and, you know, very disappointed tone in her voice. And he apologizes that he has been such a disappointment. Well, her solution to that is, well, what you need is a wife. So She, she clearly wants him to, yeah, to, to get out of the home. But then again, she is, then she, you know, at one point she's talking about, well, the house is falling apart. You need to do this and you need to do this and you need to do this and you need to do this. So it's like she says, yes, find a wife, but here, do this honeydew list first and fix the, the the roof that's falling apart. And, and you know, hey, this is this hasn't worked. And it, so you get the point of she may say she wants this, but she still needs to come first in his life. And here's a list of things you need to do to take care of me. And here's a, one last quote, and this is actually from the book that gives, but I think it applies definitely to the movie. Uh, he's talking about his mother. I suppose I still love her, but I'm not conscious of it. She irritates me extremely. For years, it seems, she has done nothing but nag at me. Any feelings of tenderness and love I have are therefore directed towards Socrates. There is no one else. So yeah, he Socrates doesn't only become his best friend. That becomes his life, and that explains why he is so devastated when Socrates does die. The uh, you said you read the uh, part of the of the Ratman's notebooks by Stephen Gilbert. The movie the script was written by Gilbert A. Ralston, which is two different people, and over the years there's been some confusion that they were one and the same, and in fact they were two different people. Gilbert Ralston was very prolific in television. Again, he uh, wrote a lot of uh, episodes of Route 66, uh, Naked City, Ben Casey, Gunsmoke, the Big Valley, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and yes, he wrote an episode of Star Trek from the second season, Who Mourns for Adonais, which is the one with the Greek god Apollo. From what you can tell in, in, in the book uh, and what you saw in the movie, I mean, how much similarity is there between between the novel and and what Gilbert Ralston brought forth in the screenplay? Well, thematically very similar. Uh, however, the remake... The 2003 remake with Crispin Glover follows the book much more closely, almost plot point by plot point, scene by scene. It seems like in the movie, the focus is on the family. The The, the book doesn't have the, the mother's friends and the old ladies hanging around the house. So the movie focuses on the family 
and uh, the job, the, you know, the things that are really pushing Willard to his limit. In the book and also the 2003 Willard, it's more of, really more of a character study. It's about Willard and what he's going through anyway, regardless of the stimulus that's causing him uh, to to be pushed to his point. Makes me want to see the movie now. I I, I I didn't have much interest in the 2003 version because Crispin Glover is just a creepy guy. I always go back to when he was on the David Letterman show, and which was kind of the end of his mainstream success, I believe, when he almost knocked the head off of David Letterman. From that point forward, he was kind of a little bit ostracized by Hollywood a little bit. Uh, he's definitely a quirky guy, but does, you make me want to see this now. As to it's kind of good. It's, I like it equally. I like the two movies equally for different reasons. I don't think one is better or worse than the other. It's got a more dark sense of humor, just as one example, one of the big killing sprees that goes on uh, it's actually not a scene in the original Willard but the rats are going crazy in the house one of them bumps into the turntable the record starts playing and it's Michael Jackson's Ben <laughs> and throughout the next scene of Carnage Ben is playing so slowly and lovingly in the background so it's got that sort of, of sense of humor I definitely recommend it I, I, I like it just equally as much as, as the original now, as we're going to see in, in the, the 71 version of Willard, and then, of course, it's even amplified to the nth degree in, in Ben, there's a lot of quirky people in this little town. And, and with Willard, it was more so isolated to the office because of the, a lot of the the scenes of the people we see are related to the, the office. And, and you've got the really kind of bizarre secretary who's having an equally bizarre relationship with... with Al Martin, and um, you've got Brandt, who is the uh, little Igor-like sidekick to Martin, you know, kind of following him around. And the, I, early on in the film, when, when uh, Martin, Martin throws the paperwork at, at Willard, I mean, I noticed uh, Brandt was sitting in the, in the passenger side with his, like, gleeful little laugh and chuckling and stuff as they're driving off. It was just, he was always kind of following along at the heels. And what are you going to do? What are you going to do now? What are you going to do? What is it with this town? (laughs) I didn't notice it so much in the office. I mean, the office dynamics are definitely there. The people sucking up to the boss when he's there. But the minute behind his back, they're, you know, talking and uh, about him. And so I I didn't. That's interesting. You picked up on the characteristics. I didn't notice it so much in the office. I noticed it more with the women. Well, yeah, I was. Yeah. And and that part of that that we didn't mention is I think they're. They're out for something when the mother dies, and I, I'm not sure what it is. There's no money, but one of them, you know, is searching through the cabinets after the mother dies before even Willard has learned that she's di- she died. Now they, they know that she doesn't have money, but it's like they, they wanted a piece of something. And, and, yeah, the one crazy lady with the with the blondish hair and the heavy eyeliner and, and stuff, She I can't remember the character's name, but... Uh, the one that gets kicked out eventually and says, give me the key. And he kind of goes running off. And of course, when he does see her later on in the movie and asks, you know, Oh, what a nice new car you got. And then as soon as she hears that she, you know, he's looking for money, she goes running off back into her store. Jonathan Farley, the character played by J Pat O'Malley is probably the sanest of that bunch. He, and you know, he's when he's at the, at the funeral home and Willard comes up, you know, basically he's, he's telling Willard, 
sell the house. Why are you going to keep the house? Get rid of it. Move somewhere else. Um, he's not quite as as freaky as the rest of them, but it's it's it is a little odd little mad monster partyish bunch of people led by Elsa Lanchester there, and and it's yeah. And did you notice too? Uh, of course, Willard, and we said it in the original synopsis, Mousy. I mean, he's definitely got characteristics of a mouse. Even the way he, when he's eating a snack later, he's nibbling on a yeah, piece of cheese. Oh yeah, yeah. But the after the mother's funeral, when the old ladies and the boss and maybe some co-workers come to the house and there's food on the table they swarm that table like a bunch of rats <laughs> they did they stuff they did. their faces they eat their mouths are going a million miles an hour look just like a, a, a what's a what's a herd of rats a herd of rats a swarm a, a swarm herd of whatever a horde i think yes. a horde okay. yeah uh, yeah i mean that had to have been intentional that had to have been comparing them to to the rats that, that you know and he just kind of stood off on the sideline and observed it all he didn't want them there uh they just you know felt like you know well this is what we do right and and hey and they're just chowering down yeah that was a creepy scene too it was like they just devoured that food it's like they hadn't eaten in in weeks so willard is such a strange movie again i, I love it by the way but you know it's got these like we're talking about well that that must have been intentional so there's some thought put into it but not consistently and i i've read one of the reviews of this from way back when it first came out was that it doesn't have enough style you know to be a significant thriller and i can sort of see that it's hard it's missing something it's hard to fit into a genre it's not a full-blown horror film because you really don't get any horrific elements until the final act when when the rats really start to full-blown attack right but the, you know you've got there's there's definitely some dark comedic moments that would make it a bit more lighthearted, which sometimes works like in the recent film get out i remember i commented when i saw that it was almost too much comedy at times because you're you're, you're getting some really dark elements and then you had the lead, you know, I can't remember the lead guy's name, but his, his best friend who is like throwing in some of the most off-the-wall comedic comments, laughing out loud. It seems to to uh, kind of throw the movie off. And that's what kind of I got here with Willard. It was like you were full-blown creepy at times, but then you have this scene with the crazy friends of, of the mom or this scene with the the uh, you know the horny secretary who's wanting to spend some extra time with the boss and... It was just a lot of off-kilter stuff. I, that, and that, I didn't find those f- purposely funny. I mean, odd, strange, yes. Maybe that's a different perspective, though, if you treat this as a comedy horror. You know, maybe it would give you a different perspective. But, but I it, think, wasn't, it wasn't laugh-out-loud funny, though. It, yeah. was, it was uncomfortable, off-kilter. I mean, that's just the best way yeah. to describe it. It wasn't like, it's just quirky. You got these quirky characters, these quirky scenes... And then, you know, juxtaposed with, well, this is kind of a, definitely a quirky, horrific element. And then, of course, you get in the final act is when it's really the the, the quirky, goofy characters are now really set aside. And this has become a full-blown, it is a horror film by the time you get to the final act. But the journey getting there, it's it's the horror ele- elements are really low-key. Do you think it, it builds... Uh- I've seen it so many times, I don't know if I can watch it and feel like a suspense building with it. Did you feel any sense of suspense at all? I mean, when when it got to that conclusion, had it earned it, had it built, or, or did you find it pretty level through the whole? 
I would say more level. Yeah. I mean, it it wasn't. Uh, you know, it wasn't like uh, there was this this huge moment where the you know the rat the rat tension with the rats or something. All of a sudden, there's this huge moment. It was like, you know, now that it's time to turn on our masters. Kind of, I didn't get that, and I was very level, really all the way through. Like I said, the only change in tone came in that final act where you're getting less of the quirky characters and more now on the fact that well, the rats have kind of begun to turn on Willard as Willard's trying to essentially have a normal life he's he's trying to he's he's trying but everything keeps conspiring against him from you know he's trying to have the relationship with joan but then you know his boss ends up firing him because they're trying to get his house which he doesn't want to get rid of because that's where the rats are and i think which is really the main reason he wanted to keep the house i think because that's that's where the rats were then by the final act of the film he's he's trying to get rid of the rats yeah he doesn't he's not a villain. What he does at first makes him more confident. In fact, he tells Mr. Martin, I've got to find that quote because it's a great quote. Oh, you made me hate myself. Well, I like myself now. So that is what his relationships with, with the rats has done. It's given him confidence. It's made him stronger, made him, given him the strength to face his boss. Who's not a good guy. Al Martin's not a good guy. Yeah. He's, he's a jerk. To, he's trying, he's stolen the company. He's going to try and, uh, to to break Willard to you know steal the house so he can build so, I mean so you're not getting the the good guy or the bad guy Willard's not necessarily the bad guy in that scenario he's gaining revenge on the guy who's been the big bully in the movie and I don't know that it was that much uh, I don't know if there was that much forethought put into it and as soon as it's done is when he realizes he's gone too far and you know tries to put it into everything and then that's when the rats. Of course, Willard gets his. Uh, I did want to ask you one other thing. What did you take of the relationship with Sandra Locke and Bruce Davison? Uh, there's an attempt at a, a romance. She definitely likes him. What What do you take Willard's relationship or capability to have a relationship with a woman? Did How did he you was, take that? She was secondary to the rats. I mean, his primary concern was the rats. And and I found, like, when she gave him the cat and he walks up to the random guy in the phone book, here, would you please hold this for a while, and then drives off. You know, it seemed to me like the rats were the, were his main love. And then you get to the final act of the film, he's having dinner with, with Joan, and you're getting the feels like, well, you know, okay, he's maybe he's he is putting the rats aside, Maybe he's he's coming to terms with the fact that he's wanted wants to have a relationship with Joan, but then when the rats pop up, he realizes he can't have that because now he's got this issue with the rats that he has to try to resolve. I feel like if he would have been able to maybe eliminate the 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 threat of the rats, that he might have been able to move forward and have a relationship with Joan. He was clearly to the point where he'd gotten rid of the obstacles in his life. And he was comfortable with who he was, and he didn't want the rats there anymore, right? They'd become problematic, but he became a victim at that point of, of the rats in the, in the final final scene when, spoiler alert, you know, the rats eventually, you know, kill poor Willard. And uh, the last we see of Joan, she's getting shoved out the door. And it's obvious, as we see in Ben, that she was probably the one who contacted the police to, I, I don't even know if they mentioned her by name, but that's the Im- implication was that, she went because she knew that something was going on. She's the one that maybe called the police and then to, to check on Willard. I, th- I think they could have gone off and, 
and and had a relationship had the rats been had he been able to eliminate the rats the rats helped him become who he was but in the end the rats had turned on him did you this is gonna be an out there question any thoughts in your mind at all any feelings that willard might be gay um yeah i mean you definitely you can see that yeah i mean there's no you don't get there's no indication that he was interested in anyone in the film he was definitely awkward around women and again that's certainly because of his relationship with his mom there might be some of that resistance to to any woman because there would be that comparison to his mother i could see that i i could definitely see that it wasn't very outward in the film but i could i could definitely see that that could be an underlying maybe part of his resistance to to the, the romantic overtures from Joan, which he clearly was just oblivious to. But again, again, I think it was because he never really had a relationship. Towards the end of the movie, though, I do think that he that he was leaning towards that, and the rats, you know, played a part in that. Now, whether or not he'd have been able to have a relationship with Joan is, you know, questionable, because clearly by that point, you know, in many ways he had surpassed the bullying, right? But I think he was also pretty well damaged by that point. From everything that had occurred up up to there, with whether it was the the relationship he had with his mom, to just being bullied, to having the company taken away from him, to being well essentially broke at that point, you know, you go another act, it'd be an interesting to see how he could have bounced back. I don't know how you know he would have had to have relied, I think, on on Joan to kind of help him because he didn't have any money at that point, and, and he was going to lose the house and possible. I mean, it's yeah. possible. I, I just wonder. I, I definitely got a vibe that maybe, but I actually don't think he is. I think he's more asexual than he is. I, think, I would agree with that. Yeah, he's definitely, because he just hasn't had that experience. I don't, uh, think, I don't think he knows how to act with anybody. Yeah. And, and so I ask all this knowing what I'm going to say next. I do want to tell you the book fills us in a little bit on that, about his feelings towards women. And it's not a, a gay thing at all, but he says, it's not that, he, it's not that I'm not attracted to women. They'd upset my life as much as any other man's if I didn't watch myself. If there was just a sexual act over and done with in five minutes, I wouldn't mind. It's the preliminaries and the consequences I won't put up with. Why should I? Why should I be a slave? It's easy enough to let off steam when you have to. So it's more that they're a pain. He doesn't want to bother with everything that comes well, along he, with being a relationship. Because he relates the relationship that he had, the one relationship with the woman he had, was the relationship with his mom, yeah. who was overbearing and willing to do this and willing to do that. So I I enjoyed it. I you know it was quirky. I wasn't sure what to expect, and I and by the time of the end of the movie, I was kind of like, what did I just watch? It wasn't what I anticipated. The more I've kind of reflected on it. I I I like I liked Willard. There was a lot going on in Willard, which is interesting because, you know, I started off Willard thinking it would be something and it ended up being something totally different, which initially left me confused. And then, you know, as I've thought about it now for days, I, I do like Willard. Whereas Ben, I started off that movie thinking it was gonna be something. <laughs> it went an entire down an entirely different path and I'll just say it here. Ben is is I would I would rewatch Willard. I could not rewatch Ben. Ben Ben went down a path that just left me seriously scratching my head, thinking, "What is up with this town? I would not live in this town." There was a lot of bizarre scenery in Ben. We'll talk about, but I, I did have a couple things I wanted to throw out about the director of Willard, Daniel Mann. Not a lot of not a very prolific director, but he does have a few films 
that uh, are, are noteworthy. Um, Come Back Little Sheba, uh, The Rose Tattoo, Butterfield 8, those are some films that are much more mainstream, and I know that I've, I haven't seen any of those, but I've heard about them. Um, the one borderline genre film that he did, you know, genres kind of crossover, he uh, directed uh, Our Man Flint, which was one of the uh, the James Coburn, late 1960 James Bond spoof spinoff parody-like films that, you know, so many spy films came out in the 60s, and, and so I thought it was interesting Interesting because, of course, the director that we'll talk about in a second of Ben also directed some spy spoof thrillers in the late 1960s. Um, So when I, the questions I was asking about how did you find the building of suspense and the pace and all that, I I usually attribute that to the director. And that's one of the first things I did in research was see, well, who directed this? It gives you the feeling it's someone at the end of their career that has done better things. However, this Daniel Mann Willard is smack dab in the middle of his career. Yeah. Um, granted, the movies you just listed are ones that he did before. Maybe none of the ones after this. Maybe he had peaked earlier. I think he did. I think he. I think he peaked very early on in his career, and then he kind of was gradually. He wasn't rock bottom by the time Willard came out, but he had certainly passed his peak. Uh, he, but he wasn't at the end of his career either. He continued to yeah. to be a, a prolific director, and that happens a lot. I mean, a lot of directors they have that big one, two, three, four, five films at the beginning, and all it takes is one or two films that aren't as successful. And the next thing you know, you're directing episodes of Marcus Welby. Um, <laughs> it's the way it works. And and I think with with Daniel Mann, I think he had a career left after Willard. Uh, it just wasn't full of of big blockbuster theatrical flicks. Did you have any other trivia on this? A couple of things with Ernest Borgnine. Uh, according to his biography, uh, autobiography, uh, he was offered a choice of a higher salary or a percentage of the box office. He chose the higher salary. Probably a wiser choice of the two. I'm not sure how successful Willard was in a box office flop. I mean, it did do some good business because it generated a sequel. Whether or not he would have made more money going that route as opposed to his salary. That's always a gamble when you do that. And then sometimes it pays off. I think, what was it? Uh, was it Robert Downey Jr. who opted to take a portion of the profits from one of the Iron Man movies? Maybe it was the first Iron Man. He took a gamble and it ended up being exponentially the the best option available because he ended up making how many times what he would have made if he would have just taken a high salary. He ended up you know, making a ton of money off the you know by taking a percentage of the profits. So I do have how much Willard made, and it's going to sound like nothing, but I wish we had a adjusted for. Maybe we can do this for next time. It made nine point two five million dollars, which I think is good for nineteen seventy one. There, I mean, well, yeah, relatively it was a hit. I mean, it, because of everything it inspired, and because of the sequel and all that. I just I I'd like to calculate that out and put it in context to see just exactly how big a hit. My impression was that Borgnine would have been better taking a fraction um, of that, but I don't know. It's that's I guess it depends. It, I don't know what his salary was. If you for can him. get a uh, car for how much, you know? Well, this is true. If you could buy a car for two thousand, well. Ford Pinto? I don't know. Is that classified uh, as a car? I'd, let's go with the house example. Yes, the house might be a better example. <laughs> yes. um, the only other little tidbit I had, this was made by Bing Crosby's production company. Bing Crosby. I, the only other thing I'd honestly say that I've seen Bing Crosby Productions is uh, Hogan's Heroes. I always remember seeing that Bing Crosby name at the end of the Hogan's Heroes credits. But he did do some production. I don't I don't have a list of what, 
what Bing Crosby did, but... Uh, I did actually make a note of that because I wondered, and I had thought I had looked into that before, and it was like only Willard. But no, very, very prolific. A lot of TV, but a lot of genre stuff as well. Some of them were TV movies. You'll like My Mother, Terror in the Wax Museum, Arnold, Reincarnation of Peter Proud. I'm not, not indicating that they were a horror... That was their typical genre, but it was definitely part of it, and they, they kind of produced a lot. In most cases, less than mainstream, but yeah, kind of some odd choices. But I mean, yeah, they were a prolific studio, so uh, and I don't know how they went about choosing what they did and what they didn't do, but it, I thought that was interesting to see Bing Crosby's name right. attached to Willard, of all things. So, And Bing Crosby was alive at this point, so he I don't know how heavily he was involved in, in the production company. Maybe he insisted on the lighter score. That may, maybe, yeah, maybe, <laughs> I'm surprised we didn't have a Bing Crosby tune breakout. That would have been just about as appropriate as, as the score that we got. So, final thoughts? Um, I enjoyed it. I would see it again. Uh, I'm glad that I finally can say that I've seen Willard. Um, it makes me want to see the uh, Crispin Glover uh, remake. I, I definitely want to check that out. And I don't feel like I adequately explained. I said I love it. I, I do love it. I've picked it apart a little bit here, but... Uh, I think when we talk about Ben and I kind of explain my feelings toward that, it'll sort of make sense. But this Willard is just a, a key movie for me. I, like I said, I can watch it anytime. I'm never bored. I think there's some deep psychological stuff there. Um, I'm really enjoying reading the book and comparing to it. So uh, I, I definitely recommend Willard. Um, it's one of my, one of my of twenty or thirty probably favorite classic movies of this era that that speaks volumes about you <laughs> well uh you know do you have a do you have a pet rat that i don't know about <laughs> and that's the thing I, they creep me out it, we didn't even talk about that let's talk about that in ben but just the very nature of rats what you know does that what kind of feeling does that give you does that automatically give you a, a feeling of unease and horror or terror just because of there's rats I, you think of rats i think of of uh, disease, trash, uh, and, and to the two things that I'm immediately pulled to: uh, Dracula, 1931, and, and uh, Dwight Fry. You know, as he's sitting there talking about the, you know, rats, rats, thousands of them, millions of them, uh, just you know, and, and the whole pestilence, and especially which was heavily uh, a part of the 1979 Nosferatu film, uh, the the rats carrying the pestilence as. Uh, Nosferatu is is you know entering London with the rats and the arrival on the ship. Also, the uh, classic old time radio uh, drama Three Skeleton Key, which was done numerous times by numerous different shows, but Inner Sanctum was the was the show that that had the most versions of Three Skeleton Key, in which Vincent Price starred in the best adaptation of it, uh, being the the uh, working on the lighthouse and the the ship crashes into the island, if I remember correctly, which of course is carrying rats and pestilence, and the rats begin attacking him as he's trapped in this lighthouse. It's one of the all-time classic old-time radio shows that I certainly would recommend as a companion piece of odd sort to get check and listen to that out. You can see listen to countless versions on YouTube, our internetarchive.org. You just the rats are just creepy, right? They're just and they envisions of them carrying disease and, and, and eating flesh and going mad and crazy, definitely. And there's also the issue of one little rat sure is cute, but when there are hundreds of them, 
you know, that changes. Oh, it was cute, right? right. When you had the little rats and, oh, you know, here, let's, 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 you know, put you in the middle of the cement pond and bring yeah. you across. And then, of course, every time you see them, it's just like it's growing in numbers and growing in numbers and growing in numbers to the point where the basement is full. And, yeah, it, it definitely gets – that part does get creepier as the movie progresses. It's like the rats went from being this quirky little cute thing to being – uh, out of control and and uh, and at that point it's like you can't control that many rats. You can you can control two or three. You can't control when there's two or three hundred. Yeah, and that's basically where Ben will start. Is uh, we don't get that growth. They're there. They're a, they're an army of rats. And uh, so let's take a break. Let's hear that trailer. Uh, listen to that synopsis and come back and talk about Ben. Cinerama releasing, and this time, he's not alone. Maybe he was Ben. That's the name of the leader of the rats. There were some pages from Willard's diary in the newspapers. Rats killed three people. All residents, go in and stay in your houses. Drive the rats in the tank area. Ah! They're eating us alive down there. There's millions of them. And they're coming for you. They're coming. They're going to burn you, Ben. And then they're going to drown you. Run, Ben. Run, please. Ben and his army of rats are on the way. Beginning immediately where Willard ended, the townsfolk and authorities react to an infestation of rats exposed by the death of Willard Stiles. Ben, the ornery leader who led a revolt against Willard, is befriended by a young boy named Danny, who tries to teach the rat the difference between right and wrong. Will he be successful as the underground home of the rats is located, and the battle between man and nature becomes increasingly violent? We started the last segment with me asking you what you thought of Willard. It was your first time. You've already already revealed a little of what you thought about Ben, but overall, how did you feel about it? In the first moments, uh, I, again, I wasn't sure exactly how Ben fit into to Willard. So, I mean, you, right from the get-go and the opening credits, you're getting flashbacks and immediately picking up on uh, moments from from Willard. Uh, and you're getting some of the classic. What's the classic line that Willard has when he's he's telling the rats tear to it up, tear tear him up? Um, so you're seeing all these 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 iconic scenes. Bruce Davison, by the way, is not listed in the credits. Uh, he is clearly in the opening credit sequence. They they pulled it directly out of Willard. So immediately you know this is a direct sequel. And as the movie starts, it's literally picking up. 
outside his house. You know, the police are now there, and it's become this big, big crowd scene uh, as they're witnessing, you know, Willard being taken out of his home as he's been attacked by the rats. Initially, I thought it was going to maybe go down a more serious path because it seemed like you had initially some of the characters you're seeing, the the police detectives and such, they're not quite as quirky as some of the characters that we saw in Willard. You had the uh, police detective uh, Cliff Kirtland, played by Joseph Campanella. You had uh, the the different police officers. Uh, one of the police officers, uh, his name was Kelly in the credits, played by Paul Carr. You had these characters, they, they seemed more grounded in reality. But then, almost immediately, you're paying attention to the crowd. And you've got this large crowd that's just lingering on and watching you know, as, as the, as the scene develops and they replace the quirky characters in the first film and take it to a, to a level that's not so much quirky as, as just weird because no matter where, no matter what time of night, you've got a crowd of people gathering, looking like Romero zombies staring off, watching the, the whole scene unfold. And it's just like, these people, what are these people doing out in the middle of the night? Why are they just gazing and and, and they're not terrified? It's they're not that, talking to each other. They're not. They're just standing in fear. They're not in. They're just. They're zombies. And they're and they're implying, of course, that the town is is in is in panic. And the only the only people that you see that are in panic is the random scene of the of the family that's that's running out of their house in the middle of the night and getting in their car and driving off in, in a sheer panic, which you, they're apparently one of the neighbors of Willard. They're the only ones that are showing legitimate panic until you get towards the end of the film a little bit. Until then, they're just, they're just zombified fa- residents of this really creepy little town that I wouldn't want to live in because you've got quirky characters here. You've got zombified neighbors over here. Uh, and you've got probably one of the most inept police forces that, I don't know, it's just, that was, very quickly I realized this isn't going to be a more serious movie, and and for me the the definite moment was when uh, we're we're introduced to the character of Danny, the young little boy, and he takes us to his workshop in the back, and... I guess maybe we'll backtrack a second. Of course, he's he's in the crowd with his with his mom and his sister, watching Willard being taken out of the home and watching the scene develop. And the mom, of course, tells them it's time to go home. They live apparently in the same neighborhood, and uh, Danny has had some some medical issues. He's not healthy. Uh, he's being taken care of a lot by his sister uh, Eve. The mom is busy working and trying to provide for the family. And Danny is is as he as we soon learn as he takes us back to his workshop. Danny is is more disturbed than Willard ever possibly could be. I can't quite describe the the look on my face as I was watching his musical number unfold as he breaks out his puppets and he's he's got a puppet show in this workshop. He's got a a lighted billboard 
you know, and I don't know if he takes this marionette show on the road, but <laughs> he he does this really creepy song, and the next thing you see, he's breaking out the pliers and he's ripping off heads off one of the marionettes. It's bizarre. It's it's and it goes downhill for me rapidly after that as Danny discovers the rats. And his relationship with the rat, and again, Ben, Ben is alive and well, and Ben has now got an army of rats that are even seemingly more, you know, I don't know what's the, what's the word I'm looking for here. Ben's more in charge of the rats, and there's a larger army of them that keeps seemingly getting bigger and bigger as the movie progresses. Danny has more of a connection with, with Ben than Willard did. Ben, you know, Danny, again, doesn't seem like he's disturbed in one hand because he's dealing with his illness, but then on the other He's clearly trying to communicate. He's clearly hearing voices in his head as the movie progresses. And he's trying to 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 turn Ben to the side of good and then saying he doesn't really feel like Ben's a bad guy. He's just he's just misunderstood. The movie just Well, he is Ben a bad guy. I mean they don't purposely attack people they go into grocery stores and eat food. They're hungry and there's a lot of them and they can That's cause true. damage. That's but they true. They don't. That's one. They of, defend themselves. I guess it's true. It was when they're being attacked, Ben is defending themselves. So that's a good point. Maybe Ben isn't the the evil character. I mean, now, okay, but he was evil though in Willard, right? Because I mean, he he. Well, I guess it could be viewed that, that they were defending themselves because Willard had decided he wanted to get rid of the rats, and so he's trying to kill the rats, and so Ben is is at that point. Wait a minute! You're trying to kill us, and so now we're not going to allow you to do that. We're going to to defend ourselves. That's a good yeah. point. I didn't well, see that. Well, and and this it's ambiguous. There's that's the thing about Ben. Every point to me is ambiguous. I am not sure how to take it. Now, what you just said about Danny is my first thought. You said he was worse than Willard ever was. I'm not sure. I I think that, but what I have just now thought of is perhaps he's some type of savant. Because when he sits at the piano and writes Ben's song, he's <laughs> right. And talk about funny facial expressions. I don't know if he's trying to pass gas while he's dreaming <laughs> of angels. In I, it's bizarre. That that was the facial expression that got me. But he's he's writing that at the time, right? He's coming up with because that's coming, his face. He's struggling with he's what struggling, the words he's coming will up be. With the words but he his... gets the perfect rhymes every time. He, I mean, yeah, that scene was, was another one of those, you know, what the F moments. And I'm sitting there, I was like, what is, what's, you know, what, really? And was, you know, and he's playing the piano and the sister is just staring there looking, oh, how, how sweet. He's creating a song in his head. And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, well, I mean, he's he is isolated much in the same way that Willard was. Willard was isolated because clearly, you know, his mother, you know, mother hand him. Danny is isolated because he's sick. and He can't get out and can't interact with other kids. So they're both socially awkward in different ways. Willard at least gets out of the house, but he's socially awkward because he's now 27 and hasn't had a relationship with someone. Danny being younger hasn't had the interaction with kids. And it's almost like Danny could be a younger version of Willard. Uh, and we have thunder in the background. How appropriate. We have some thunderstorms that have been rolling through. So that's that's we planned all that, by the way. And there's a rabbit out there, which at first glance I looked and thought it was a giant rat. Uh, yeah, if I've got rats in my garden, that's another issue. Um, so, okay, that's interesting point. I, I love this. You're making me think of things I haven't thought of. Could this have been Willard's life as a kid? We wondered what... 
his, it was like when his father was around. Now, on one hand, I think Danny's different because he comes from a loving family. But on the other hand, is he smothered the same way that Willard's mother smothered him just for different reasons. They want to protect him and they want him to get well. He's had this brush with death and he has the loveliest drawn on scar on his chest that I've ever seen. <laughs> Red ballpoint pen does great things. And he's not, if you consider that Willard was bullied by his friends at work and possibly his mother's friends, Danny isn't quite bullied. There is one scene where yes, he is, but I don't, no, in general, if he's, you know, been bullied, like I feel. Like I, I, didn't, I didn't get that feeling that he had been bullied. I think this, because he, I don't think he gets out of the house enough to, to, to do that. And the only reason he's getting out of the house now, I don't think he's ever had a reason to, but now of course he has the reason when, once he meets Ben, you know, by the, by, by very early on, the townspeople are in an uproar, right? I mean, they're, they're terrified. The rats are everywhere. They're breaking into to grocery stores. And, and meanwhile, Ben randomly, you know what comes up to he because kind of, doesn't have it starts ben comes just on the door on, on the window right yeah, yep and you know danny brings him in and and um eventually you know ben gets his own little marionette uh and becomes part of the traveling marionette show yeah and there's that whole thing too because he talks about ben he's not trying to keep him secret or hidden and everyone thinks it's his marionette and so when he says, yeah, I'll show you where Ben is. And he goes and does a puppet show with the rat. You know, he's discounted. One last point I just thought of also about the bullying and whether Danny is like Willard. So in the one scene where the boy does harass Danny, he may be a little psychopath because he immediately, gosh, what happens? What does he do? That Does he send the rats to the boy? He gets he's getting band-aids on his leg for something. Maybe the rats bit him. But Danny lies about it and says, No, he fell in a rose bush. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it, it is clearly the rats were defending Danny. And so there's some semblance of intelligence there and they're protecting Danny. I mean, clearly that's what that's what that whole scene played out. And yeah, Danny doesn't say he doesn't talk about the rats defending him. He's like he's just saying, Well, yeah, he hit a rose bush. There's but he so he took a an action earlier than Willard did that I would consider antisocial or psychopathic. He, you know, he manipulated the situation, lied to the police, to his parent, to his mom. Oh, we don't know where his dad is either, do we? I got the impression again the dad passed away. Okay. Which again, there's a lot of similarities there. It's, it's, I guess the lesson is don't let your dad pass away or else rats will swarm in to take his place and and it i think it's 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 clearly the mother henning mothers the the ones who who are generating these norman bait wannabes i think that danny is clearly more psychopathic than than willard uh willard has has as you know kind of led a, a a troubled life but he's clearly trying to better himself i don't get the impression that danny really wants to to and by the end of Willard, Willard wants to get rid of the rats, right? He wants to potentially have this relationship with Joan. By the end of Ben, that's not happening. I mean, Danny, you know, um, is coming to the defense of, of of Ben and the rats. He's trying to get Ben to to hide and leave. And once they, they the police find out where their the main horde is, and and as as you know, we get into the final act of the film. The inept police are finally trying to eliminate the rats, and they're breaking out the flamethrowers, and they're going through the sewers, and they're chasing the rats, and and uh, uh, you get to the to the basically 
the final scene where it's revealed, spoiler alert again, that Ben doesn't die. Ben's in pretty bad shape, but Ben makes it back to uh, Danny's workshop, and Danny is caring for Ben at the end of the film. He's breaking out the first aid kit, and and, and Ben, you get the implication that Danny's going to take care of Ben and nurse Ben back to health, and clearly there could have been a third film with an older version of Danny being a kind of pseudo new version of Willard, but I think a much more psychopathic version. I don't get any sense that, that Danny is, is on a, a course to a healthy childhood. I think he's, he's clearly, uh, you know, clearly going down a more disturbed path. Yeah. He says to, to Ben at the end, you'll get well, Ben, and I'll get well, we'll get well. No one's going to hurt any of my friends. No, sir. You're the only friend I have. I love you, Ben. Yes. That, there's nothing creepy about that at all. No. So um, I, I know this is, I feel like we're just repeating, but this relationship between Danny and Ben, it, there's so many things. I, I mean, so Danny has no friends. So he's inclined, sure, if a rat climbs in the window, he's inclined to make him a friend. He knows Ben has done wrong. He puts pretty close together that Ben was the rat that was involved with Willard's death. Yet he still chooses, you know, to be his friend. He thinks, I don't even know if he thinks he can teach him that that's wrong. He's te- he's telling him all along, you know, that's wrong. You can't do that. They're going to be afraid of you. So he's sort of a, a mentor or a teacher. There's that relationship. He sort of envies Ben when he gets underground and sees where he lives. He, he says that he loves his house. You know, it's a big sewer. Yeah. Where all, you know, he. So there's something he's missing in his home life. Maybe he, he doesn't really feel like he had a home if he's been sick and in the hospital. He's been he's been very sheltered, and I think, uh, you know, I I don't think Willard was necessarily sheltered in that way. Willard did have, I think, an outside life out of the home, but it's like whenever he came home, it was just like, you know, he he had that that again. Everything was centered around having to take care of his mom. Danny has been sheltered because he's been sick. He hasn't been allowed to go out. And I think that adds, I think, to the to his psychosis, whereas Willard was able to break out of out of that that shell. Danny wasn't necessarily able to do that. And then, of course, now that he's acquired the friendship of Ben, again, as you said, that final scene is like, you know, no one's going to hurt you. No one's going to hurt me clearly a much darker ending whereas you know willard was dark right because the rats had turned on willard but willard as a character you feel it you know whatever borderline bad things willard may have done by sicking the rats on martin uh by the end of the movie he was trying to correct the wrongs by eliminating the rats whereas in ben you know it's it's clearly yeah ben's alive and well and danny is you know going down a dark path at the end of the film which i think is is a much darker ending than we got in in Willard. Not maybe not as horrific with the rats attacking Willard, but there's no redemption for Danny's character. You get the redemption of Willard's character at the end. You don't get that from Danny. Danny is is clearly perhaps even snapped, even darker because he's now he's like no one's going to hurt you. No one's going to hurt me. I, not an uplifting end for for Danny's character at the end of the movie. And that's a good point. And my thing with Ben is I just I don't really know. Who, 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 whose side are we supposed to be on? Uh, now, and here's a, an interesting point, perhaps. So Willard, the name of the movie Willard, is about the man. Ben, the movie Ben, is about the rat. So really, 
you could take that literally that Willard is from the, the human perspective and Ben is from the rat's perspective. But, you know, how are we supposed to sympathize or empathize with Ben? We know he's done these horrible things. Are, you know, are we... It's just, I don't know how to feel. I don't know which character... There's not a hero. There's not a hero in Ben. There's not a quote-unquote good character. There's not someone... I'm not cheering for Danny because Danny's the disturbed little kid. I'm not cheering for the police detectives because, I mean, again, they're kind of hunting down the rats even though the rats haven't done necessarily anything really, really bad. None of the other characters, I mean, I guess maybe the, the closest... You know, person to to being a good person, a heroine, is Danny's uh, sister Eve. She doesn't necessarily do anything wrong in the movie. She's trying to take care of Danny. She ends up going to try to find Danny. You know, she's not quirky in any way. I mean, his mom, Beth Garrison, she certainly comes across as a worrywart and a little borderline hysterical. Eve is about the only sane one in the movie that, that yeah. she doesn't do anything bad or quirky. I mean, the police detectives are pretty inept to the point where it, it was funny. Joseph Campanella's character, Cliff, it seems like every time he's lighting a cigarette, his partner is like lighting the cigarette for him or something. It's just, you know, it's just like, again, it's that kind of that, that Al Martin uh, Brandt relationship, whereas the sidekick detective is like, you know, what do we do now, boss? What do we do? bizarre relationship that they had and you know and then again every time they're there at a crime scene there's the the villagers you know minus their pitchforks and and torches just kind of leering on as as meanwhile the town is apparently in a state of panic you've got bug inspectors showing up or rodent inspectors showing up in in ghostbuster like cars pulling up to the houses you know we're here to get your rats and just really some bizarre stuff in this film I like it as a sequel I I like sequels that begin right where the other one is oh as a sequel it definitely yeah it definitely ties it very well it has a somewhat realistic approach I mean yeah if we discovered an infestation of rats somewhere the neighbors would be worried about it the authorities would be trying to shut it down you know I I like the approach they took with it now I have to tell you Seeing this in the theater at nine years old, I loved this movie. I think, I don't know if it would be the same today, but as a kid, you've got to identify with Danny. You know, you probably don't see the different depths and layers that are there. You probably feel sorry for Ben. You probably do think he's the hero and that the humans are the bad guys. My memory of this movie far exceeds the movie <laughs> um it's it's not the i still like it today but it's it, you know in a lot of ways yeah it is more grounded in 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 reality so you can relate i think to to the situation a little bit better than you can willard because clearly willard's world is 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 not necessarily common whereas you are seeing some common events outside of of danny's marionette hell that he's got in the backyard Danny is, yeah. I mean, in many, yeah, he's he's got the psychopathic tendencies, but not obsessively so. I mean, he is he is from a kid's perspective. He's, you know, why are you hurting the animal? Why why is why is mankind doing this to the poor little animals? And as you said, the animals didn't necessarily do anything really really wrong, other than just being territorial. I mean, they did kill Willard though. I mean, so clearly. You know, and and Ben was clearly leading the rats at that point. So, but then, as we said, Willard did try hurting the rats. So it's it's kind of hard to 
Ben is a bit more complicated as to really who is the good person, who is the bad person here. The next question, though, and this is kind of segueing into this, I, I, I seem to feel like this w- came across more like a made-for-TV movie. There wasn't a lot of location shots. There was a lot of uh, set, you know, uh, you know, background lot back lot sets that like in the town and stuff. Whereas Willard clearly had a lot of location shots. It had a, a more of a feel of a more of a theatrical film. Ben outside of like the neighborhood shot, you know, which is like the same shot all the time and did not seem like a neighborhood where, where Willard's house would have been. Right. Uh, I, I envisioned Willard's house being in a much older neighborhood, uh, which that was a disconnect for me. But anytime you see any like location shots, uh, it's it seemingly is like on a back lot. Uh, I one of the more interesting scenes for me, honestly, was the grocery store scene. Do you think maybe that Kellogg's was a, a sponsor <laughs> of some? Maybe I don't know. I have never, you know, sometimes brand placement in films is so blatantly obvious. I, I this one was it couldn't have been more obvious if it you know hit you over the head with a brick. Many years ago, I saw. Laurel and Hardy's very last film is called Utopia. It is a it is the worst film they ever did. Um, there is a scene where they're they're on a boat and uh, they are like eating uh, sardines and and stuff. And it's not in all the versions of Utopia. It was on the VHS version I had, but it, I have not. It's not on the DVD version that I, I have since purchased. But there's a scene where the camera very longingly focused on the brand of sardines, the fact that they were drinking a Coke. Clearly, these were scenes that were added in after the fact. Uh, I wish that I I could find a copy of that. Um, It was a VHS Good Times copy of it that had that. And like I said, the DVD version doesn't have it. So clearly, that was something maybe inserted at one point and taken out. I remember watching that. I was thinking, it's like, wow, that, I mean, in long shots, much like here, where there was a lot of long shots, and you were getting uh, an idea of the entire Kellogg cereal brand <laughs> line, but I, it was nostalgic for me, so I kind of liked it for that. But it was, again, that was clearly a a a set, a very poorly constructed grocery store set that had you know bare minimum, bare budget. So I don't know. Ben clearly must have had a lesser budget. Well, it's, which made it feel to me like a, at times kind of a cheaper made-for-TV movie. Yeah, well, two things. It, it probably suffers. We've talked about this before, how if a, a movie does well and makes lots of money, why do they spend less on the sequel? That There could be a little of that going on. Also, it definitely looks like a TV movie, but a lot of movies around this time look like TV movies. It's true. It, it's true. Uh, you had a lot of TV actors in this one. You didn't have... a an Elsa Lanchester or an Ernest Borgnine in this film. Um, Danny was played by a young actor by the name of Lee Montgomery, who I just couldn't remember where I knew knew him from as I was watching the movie. And then afterwards, when I looked at the credits, he was the young kind of at times aggravating boy in the movie Burn Offerings, which I believe was just a few years later. He did a lot of TV work, did a movie in 84 called Mutant, which I had heard about. I don't think I've ever seen. Uh, Joseph Campanella, Character actor, a lot of television work. Uh, he was uh, the original father on One Day at a Time in the early seasons of that uh, sitcom. He was uh, in the, I think, at least the early seasons of Mannix. He was on uh, an episode of The Invaders, and he was in Night Gallery. 
the character of Bill Hatfield, uh, played by Arthur O'Connell. He was the newspaper reporter. Again, one of those guys you just recognize. A lot of TV work. Uh, he was in Night Gallery. He was in Fantastic Voyage, so another theatrical film. The mother, Beth Garrison, played by Rosemary Murphy. A lot of TV work, but she did do some genre stuff on television. She was in One Step Beyond, which was a precursor anthology series to the twilight zone she was in way out which is a very short run uh anthology series in which there's i think maybe five episodes now out on on youtube some of the episodes are known to uh have been erased so they're missing definitely low budget anthology it was about the same time as the twilight zone but not as well made um and she was also in thriller boris karloff's anthology series the one person that you'll find, probably recognize more than the others is the character of Eve, the sister Eve, played by Meredith Baxter. Uh, Meredith Baxter Bernie, uh, best known for a character of Elise Keaton on Family Ties and about at least 50% of the output of Lifetime movies. We had uh, Kenneth Toby uh, as the engineer. Yeah, did you recognize him? I recognized him, I just couldn't remember what he was in. I looked for him because I saw the name, and I don't know who Engineer was. I mean, I, he, I don't know which person it, it was in the movie that was him. I didn't recognize him, but he was he was with uh, as they were going into the to the underground. He was one of the guys involved in that, if I remember correctly. I remember him in the movie. Of course, Kenneth Toby from the Thing, the original Thing. He was in It Came from Beneath the Sea. The one of the policemen uh, was played by Norman Alden. He was the uh, darker haired, one of the darker haired policemen. Again, a character actor that if you've seen anything in the '60s and '70s, you recognize him as an actor, but you don't know his name. 244 credits, um, and really nothing I could say in specific. He was in this or this. He was in just about everything, and usually playing kind of the of a, a grumpy character. Star Trek reference. Got to pull it in. The police officer, Kelly, played by Paul Carr, played uh, Lieutenant Kelso, the chief helmsman in the second Star Trek pilot, Where No Man Has Gone Before. He gets killed off by Gary Mitchell in that one. He was a character actor in a lot of work as well. Uh, Six Million Dollar Man was one of his guest roles. So a lot of TV actors in this one, which I think mentally for me, added to that feel that this was a made-for-TV movie. Yeah, And I don't know if audiences today would really recognize those faces, but again, seeing this at the time, Joseph Campanella, Arthur O'Connell, they were so familiar. You just saw them everywhere all the time. If you're from our genre, I mean, I know you're a little bit older than I am, but not much. I grew up as a child of the 70s, and I loved watching TV shows of the 60s. Still do. Still prefer that, actually. Uh, I guarantee if if you... uh, spend any time watching me TV or antenna TV. You're going to see these these actors. You're going to start recognizing a lot of these faces. Again, may not know them by name, but you'll recognize them by by face. And I liked those two relationship, uh, Campanella and O'Connell. One is the police chief, or at least the one in charge, and the other was the press. They had sort of you know the relationship. You could tell they had a history. I think the policeman said, "Could he hold?" off on it until a certain time and you know the guy complied they'd obviously obviously worked together before had a relationship i think they tried to crack a joke at the end i don't know i i like that part of it i i think the you know again the cast was maybe not again not a uh, a standout like a a borgnine or lanchester performance like we got in willard 
I think uh, I think it was it was a it was a good cast of, of familiar familiar faces, which you know uh, sometimes helps you get through a movie if the movie's if you're struggling with it. Sometimes it can kind of pull you out a little bit if if you're watching a movie and you're like you're trying to sit there and figure out well who's this person who's this person. Would this movie have played better if it wouldn't have had any familiar character actors? I probably not. I think it might have even become a little bit more forgetful because it was comforting to see some people like Joseph Campanella and 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 you know Paul Carr and, and some of these faces that you recognize. For me, it's it, it and again very much a product of that '60s and '70s time frame in, in which this was made. Speaking of it looking like a TV movie, did you think it looked older than 1972? I just got the impression the cars in the crowd scenes they just look, they looked older than seventy two maybe not but early seventies I mean it's, when you take a look at like films and and styles I mean nineteen sixties is an interesting decade because if you watch anything from the early sixties it's almost like you're watching stuff from the fifties uh, and all of a sudden in any styles of horror films and such mid to late sixties styles were changing hairstyles were getting longer. Cars were changing a little bit. That 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 Beaver Cleaver 1950s style that bled over into the early 60s, vastly different by the time you get to the to the end of the 60s. So the 1970s, kind of the same, right? Early 1970s, mm-hmm. music was very similar to what we had in the late 60s. Styles, cars, everything. Early 70s was an extension of the 60s. By the time you get to the mid to late 70s, you're getting into the disco era. Musically, things are changing. Hairstyles and such were, were, were changing a little bit, but you were getting a lot more of the leisure suits and, and the, a lot more different fashions a little bit. The 70s had a, a definite 60s vibe to it, early 70s. You watch a lot of movies from that time frame. It's not as easy to, to pinpoint it was the 60s or 70s. It can go either way. That's a good point. So the decades are often defined later in the decades, I guess. Here's a little interesting throwaway point. So in Willard, I never saw Willard writing in a notebook or keeping a diary, did you? No. Well, that's their roadmap in Ben is Willard's diary that they're using to try to piece things together. Interesting to me because that's the way the book, The Rat Man's Notebook, is written, uh, is as a diary. Uh, so just kind of tying everything together. I thought that kind of interesting he, Plot device. he there may have been scenes where he was writing that they just didn't show yeah you can't say <laughs> definitively that there wasn't it was a plot device in order to be able to tie into the first film and explain how people knew anything about ben and willard and stuff i i, I bought it it was it, it didn't it wasn't too much of a stretch the film was written by gilbert ralston who wrote the first film uh not based on the book but based on the characters by stephen gilbert so and i think it was a as a sequel, it really was a, an excellent follow-up. I think, I mean, clearly you watch these two films back-to-back, and, and although there's some definite differences in tone, they do go hand-in-hand together, and they do. Ben clearly continues the story that we got in Willard. Directed by Phil Carlson, who uh, had some interesting credits. He had a lot of credits going back to the 1940s, um, he did some 1960s James Bond-ish, you know, spy spoofs. Two entries in the Matt Helm, Dean Martin series, uh, The Silencers and Wrecking Crew. He did some Charlie Chan films in the 1940s, uh, Shanghai Cobra and Dark Alibi. Uh, he also did a couple of films in the Shadow film series. Uh, there was a series of Shadow movies in the 40s. The Shadow, of course, being a popular pulp and, and uh, old-time radio 
uh, crime fighter. Um, the movies, unfortunately, never really truly captured what we got in the in the books or on the radio show. There was three movies in particular in the 1940s that really don't even really resemble the shadow as a character. They were clearly just cr- let's crank this out and try to capitalize on on the the character, the name, but it's nothing resembling what we got in the pulp novels or the radio shows. Uh, his two entries were Behind the Mask and The Missing Lady. Both films pretty forgettable. But he would also think it was the following year, maybe, sometime right around this, he did Walking Tall. He directed the original Walking Tall. So a uh, very prolific career and one that he had been around Hollywood for a while and wasn't done yet. He was nearing the end of his career, but clearly Walking Tall is a is a is really a classic. So, I mean, he uh, was clearly still doing some, some pretty big work around this time period. I don't think I really have anything else to say about Ben, do you? Uh, um, we, do we need to talk about the song? Well, I think, yeah, we need to talk about the song. Um, this is one of Michael Jackson's favorite songs. You know, it uh, it was featured on his second solo album. Um, it was originally supposedly going to be sung by Donny Osmond. The song was offered to him, but he couldn't. He didn't have the time to record it, so it was given to Michael Jackson, who was starting off his solo career around this time. Clearly, plays a big part in the, in the movie. You've got the the scene we talked about as Danny sits down on his piano and is composing Ben. Uh, the song itself proper isn't heard. The theme is heard at times. I, I was going to say, after he writes that, then that melody is incorporated into the score from that point it be, on. It clearly becomes Ben's theme at that point, and it's heard. But the song itself doesn't pop up until the end credits. You know, you can hear the song. No reference to the movie. Uh, it, it can be a very nice song, and there's really no idea that you're listening to a rat song. Uh, I think once you see the movie, then all of a sudden the the whole uh, concept of the song changes drastically. It reminds me of, uh, really random here, American Idol, uh, the year that Clay Aiken was on. I followed it, and he sang uh, the song from An American Tale, uh, Somewhere Out There. Somewhere Out There, okay. And I can distinctly remember Simon Cowell saying, that was the most lovely song I've heard sung about a rat. Or, yeah, something <laughs> like that. That's sort of like Ben. I mean, I love the song. I Che- oh, cheesy a- as can be, but I, I, I could pl- one. It's one of maybe three songs I could play on the piano, and I, I like it. I, I'm really beginning to get a sense that you have an affinity for rats. You can play the piano. I really don't. I'm gonna check around your basement. If there's a marionette room, I'm. I please. I, I'm, I'm. You know, if you don't hear from me after this podcast, I assure I, I, you, there's not. <laughs> this, of course, was was one of the. Uh, uh, Robert Roger Ebert's most hated films. He he hated. I don't know the reason why, uh, but this little bit of trivia. This yeah. is apparently well, a film I, he hated. I looked that up because I wanted to know. I, I mean, what is so bad about it that would be one of his most hated movies? And uh, the clip I found was that supposedly in a movie like this, you're supposed to be scared by some awesome menace to mankind. But in this case. It says the movie is designed to be disgusted because the actors have rats all over them. So apparently he saw no uh, suspense or relationship. He just saw a cheap attempt to... Well, I think if, if you compare this to... These these films were the start of the nature run amuck films of the 70s. There's a lot of other films that followed this that were much more 
graphic, much more intense, much more horrifying, sometimes cheesy, yes, but I mean, nature, you know, here, I mean, the, the threat is, is, is much more limited than we would get in the other films that were inspired by this any number of films, whether it's, you know, swarms of bees or a crazy grizzly bear or giant killer ants or giant rats and food of the gods. I mean, clearly the threat is, is much more significant in those films than we get here. You know, again, is Ben horrific? Is it a horror film? Uh, there's clearly some, some horror elements to it. I wouldn't say that it's any more horrific you know, or any less horrific than, than Willard. I think there's a lot of other stuff going on in the plot that, that doesn't necessarily make it feel like a horror film. I don't think there's a lot of, you asked me in the first film, is there a buildup of, you know, uh, intensity, you know, uh, I didn't get that feeling in, in Ben, you know, I would get the occasional moments of confusion <laughs> was again, these crowds and random events and, Danny seemingly having no problem climbing down into the sewers and being a bit disgusted at times, but you know clearly having no no fear of going out into the sewers with his with his good friend Ben. Quirky film, definitely different in tone at times than than Willard. Um, I think he's. I think there must be more to that, either that or he's criticizing it for being a movie that it's not because like you said i don't think it's intended to be horror it's not intended to inspire terror in us no there, there's a there's a, a million other films that i would i would list on a most hated list than ben definitely I, I can't say that i would i'm going to revisit ben like i said i would revisit willard because i appreciate it more as i've been thinking about it a few days i i can't say that i appreciate ben more a few days after the fact i i continue to scratch my head a little bit at it i didn't hate it perplexed by it at times but i didn't hate it and i wouldn't put it on a most hated list there there's clearly other films that i would do that there was nothing aggravating in ben well okay the marionette scene maybe a little but that was only one part of the film i there's a lot of other films that i'm aggravated from from beginning to end i've mentioned the incredible petrified world is one of the most boring films i've seen mesa of lost women that is aggravating uh Cat Women on the Moon is one that I just struggled with greatly. So yeah, there's a lot of other films that I'd put on the most hated list before I would I would put Ben on it. Any final words? Both of these are available on yeah. Uh, Blu-ray. Yeah, they've just come out. And for a long time, they weren't readily available. So I, I hope they're finding an audience now. I, I would recommend them both. I don't like Ben as much as Willard. But yeah, our Scream Factory special features are skimpy. There's one interview on each movie. Uh, the first on Willard is an interview with Bruce Davidson, and the second one is with Lee Montgomery is on Ben. Um, not a lot of great insight. They're really short interviews, but hey, it's something. And Oh, in fact, Ben, there's a disclaimer at the beginning. Did you have it on the DVD? I did, yeah. That yeah. It's, it's not a... They restored it best they could, but it's apparently not as good as other movies that I can I didn't see anything noticeable about it maybe that's why it looks like a TV movie had they restored it properly it would have been yes yes the colors would have been more vibrant and it would have left out I I didn't notice anything again there's people out there that would have probably a much more keen eye that well this has a you know this much more grain in it and I don't know it's a TV you know or uh, again it's not a TV film, but it's a film of the early 1970s. The quality of an early 70s film is not going to be equal to that of a film made today. So I go into these films knowing 
I'm not going to be seeing an, an HD presentation. And you can put these films on Blu-ray, but you can only make a movie look so good based on your original source material. And I found both films looking to be to be very respectable for films made of in '71 and '72. No problems with the with the quality of the films for me at all. Okay, well, we will take our last break. Uh, when we come back, we'll wrap up with birthdays, anniversaries, stuff like that. Sounds good. On the CBS Late Movie, a double feature. Darren McGavin stars as Kolchak, the Night Stalker. by tonight's second feature on the CBS Leak Movie. Dracula is back to choose his human victims who must die so that he may live. She's a vampire! Another beautiful woman is destroyed by the Prince of Darkness. And she, in turn, must continue his evil work. Prepare yourself for one of the greatest shockers of them all. Christopher Lee stars in Taste the Blood of Dracula. And now, Darren McGavin in The Night Stalker. We are back. And we're recording this episode... Within a shorter time of the last episode than we normally do. I think it's only been about three weeks. So we don't have as much news this time. A lot of the announcements of, that are of movies coming out on DVD or Blu-ray are done. But there are a few. In June uh, this month, actually, there's one we haven't mentioned from Blue Underground. Uh, Deathline, also known as Raw Meat. Have you seen that with Donald no. Pleasance? No, I've heard of it. Oh, have not, have it's not pretty seen good. It. I like it. Uh, I was considering... I probably will get the Blu-ray. In August, Arrow Video is releasing Don't Torture a Duckling, 1972 Fulci movie. I know of this for some reason that I can't think of it, but it's on my radar. I'm familiar with it. I haven't... I've seen some Fulci work. Zombie, I think, is is clearly... I think Fulci's most famous film. And I've seen a couple of his other works. Not as prolific in in the the, uh, Fulci... Wheelhouse. Scream Factory in September is putting out a 1977 TV movie called The Spell. I don't know that I've seen it, but it sounds interesting to me. It has Lee Grant and Helen Hunt. It sounds an awful lot like Carrie, and this would have been the year after Carrie was released in theaters. A girl with powers that takes revenge. I think I've seen Helen Hunt would have been younger at that point. I think I've seen that. That sounds awful familiar to me. The cast yeah. does. And also one from 1968, A Quiet Place in the Country. Again, it's on my radar for some reason. I've never seen it. I don't know why, I've but it sounds significant. bits and pieces. It's a bizarre little film. Turner Classic Movies would, te- would tend to show that uh, late night, Friday nights or Saturday nights when they were doing their, you know, I forget what they used to call it, but they used to do some, some late night films. Zom- Rob Zombie hosted it for a while. Hmm. But yeah, it, it's that's a quirky film. It's something to do about it. Gosh, an artist or something. They leave the city because they're haunted by something. Something and like they that. they go to the yeah. country. And, so. Yeah. Clearly, we don't know what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, well, but. no glowing recommendations here, but no. if one of those catches your ear, um, you should be dancing up and down because they're coming out. Uh, birthdays in June after the trifecta of May. There's nothing quite as, as equal to that, but uh, June 13th, Basil Rathbone was born. Oh. And June 26th, Peter Laurie. 
pretty big. 29th, Ray Harryhausen. I guess I shouldn't discount them. Those are, are, those are three. Those are pretty big. Yep. Three big ones yep. there. Not exactly the same scale, but very familiar to Hammer Lovers. Thorley Walters was born on June 12th. Dracula, Prince of Darkness, Frankenstein, Cray Woman, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed in Vampire Circus. And then Herschel Gordon Lewis on the 15th, if uh, you're into his particular cup of tea. I can say I've never seen one of his films. I have a documentary that I I went ahead and and bought and added it to my my ever-growing stack of films to watch so I can become more familiar with who he is. I would like to say that I can at least have seen maybe one or two of his films. That said, I, I don't go for the blood and gore. Typically, I've seen, I watch films of blood and gore, but it's not one of the genres that I am drawn to. Sure. There are perhaps some more uh, significant movies that were originally released in June than there, there were birthdays. Uh, June 1st, This Island Earth. June 3rd, uh, the original Nosferatu. June 7th, Curse of the Werewolf. Hammer's yeah. entry into the werewolf. The 12th, Rosemary's Baby. The 16th, Psycho. June 19th, I Was a Teenage Werewolf. We probably mentioned that when we did yeah, our podcast yeah. on that. June 19th, Them. I had giant, uh, giant ants in that one. So I'll go this predated Willard by a couple of decades. One of the biggest, I think, of the 1950s giant bug movies oh. by far. June 20th, Jaws. You know, I've often said that the era, the years we've chosen to define classic horrors were up to 78 with uh, Halloween. But really, things changed a lot as well with Jaws and then with Star Wars earlier in the that. The 70s but, was a lot. You had Exorcist, you know, and then Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and then Jaws, and then Star Wars. There was a lot of turning points in the 1970s that you could pinpoint... This film, this film, this film is being a turning point in, in horror or sci-fi. Uh, for any, and of course, Jaws, borderline horror, clearly, you know, was was a turning point in film. There's a lot of that in the '70s. Yeah, and if we talk about Willard being an inspiration for at least some of the nature gone amuck movies, Jaws could be considered that, and it itself spawned a whole slew of water-based nature run amuck movies. Probably definitely more so than than Willard did, but yeah. you could sort of group them in the same family. There was a lot of cheap, yes, ripoffs certainly that followed. A lot of uh, foreign films. Uh, I, there's, I know there's a, I think there's a Italian version, is it of Jaws that I can't remember the name of it. That is, is I know has been kind of buried for a lot of years because it is so similar to Jaws. I can't hmm. remember the name of it though. June 25th, Curse of Frankenstein was originally released, and then June 26th. King Kong versus Godzilla. Definitely so, some classics yeah, on that list. Some good definitely movies to celebrate. I think last time we reported that Turner Classic Movies was having creature features every Thursday night of the month. There's nothing like that in June. However, there are a couple of things to note. On June 6th, the evening is dedicated to the director Edgar G. Ulmer, who did The Black Cat. Man from Planet X and Amazing Transparent Man. They'll be showing all three of those movies. Man from Planet X is a, is a really creepy looking alien in that one. Have you ever seen that one? I don't think so. It, there's a, it takes place on like a moor, so there's a lot of fog, and the aliens got kind of a long, narrow face uh, in a spacesuit. It's uh, I, I was impressed by that film when I saw it. It's probably been maybe six, seven years ago now. Uh, a nice, nice, seldom talked about film. Hmm. I'll definitely be uh, watching 
Well, I haven't seen Amazing Transparent Man either, so... Well, I say watching, I mean putting on the DVR, DVR. and then a year later <laughs> deleting it so I have space, but... Amazing uh, Transparent Man's not bad. Yeah, I, it's been a while since I've seen that one, too. And then on June 21st, they're doing an evening of cult classics. The only one, really, that fits in here is they're showing 1932's Freaks. So if you've never seen that, that's pretty much a must-see. It's a must-see. It's a film that could disturb some people because there's there's uh, some definite... There's, it's not all of them, but many of them are, are real-life, um, well, sideshow freaks, but, you know, for lack of a better, more sensitive term. That's what they were called back then. Uh, that, that movie is one that I've seen it several times. It can be a bit unsettling to, yeah. to make it through freaks. It's not an easy watch uh, and especially by today's standards, I don't think yeah. I, it's not an easy watch at all. Yeah, you said some people could be upset. I think most people should be uh, disturbed by it. If you're not, I think I would worry more than <laughs> if you weren't. But I think I think if you find it, if you find that movie uh, to be uh, a fun watch, you, you probably need to to uh, befriend perhaps, a rat. And... Befriend a rat and hang out in your cellar. So tell us what we are doing next month. Well, the next episode is going to come out post-Monster Bash, because we are uh, taking the, the uh, Dragula, <laughs> what do you want to call it? Uh, we, we are crossing country to uh, head to Mars, Pennsylvania, the last weekend in June. Uh, we're going to be meeting up with uh, uh, some familiar people. I'm going to, of course, Christopher R. Mim is going to be there at the Monster Bash. Have you met Christopher Mim before? I have. Yeah, so we, we both met him. Uh, special effects wizard Mitch Gonzalez is going to be there who does work on the Mimiverse films I don't think this is a spoiler but uh, the word is out that podcast legend uh, Mr. Derek M. Cook is going to be there Uh, we're going to be picking him up on our way to Mars, Pennsylvania and spending an entire weekend of getting no sleep and making our pocketbooks weep and uh, hitting up the Monster Bash so we're hoping to maybe get a chance to talk to some people uh, I think I think it's safe to say we'll be able to to sit down and maybe have a conversation or two with with Derek, maybe talk with Christopher Mim, see what kind of happens. There's a lot of people there, uh, even if it's just we can get a soundbite or two. Uh, and plus, I think being our first time being at Monster Bash, we're, we'll have plenty to talk about. I would think so. Um, but we are going to cover a movie. One of the guests at this year's Monster Bash is uh, legendary director Bert I. Gordon, Mr. Big. And a movie that they're playing at Monster Bash is the one we decided we're going to cover uh, on next month's episode, and that is The Beginning of the End, which was released in 57 and has to do with giant grasshoppers. Um, And I've seen that. It's been a few years. It's a lot of fun. So uh, we'll be talking about Monster Bash, talking about the... Uh, Mr. Big and beginning of the end and uh, hopefully we'll have some fun stories to tell. Yeah, I think so. I think that's that's all I've got for this episode then. We're just we're focusing on Monster Bash and uh, and I think the only move, I, I have to admit, I did buy a couple films in the last month. I did buy Caltiki on Blu-ray and I did buy From Hell It Came uh, as my last big purchases if you will, before Monster Bash uh, in anticipation that uh, I'm sure one or two of the vendors there will probably get plenty of my money. I know Juan and his Mexican horror films will be there. That's a genre that I'm just beginning to dive into and am fascinated by. So I'm sure he'll have some fun stuff there at his table. And I'm sure there'll be a few others along the way. Well, let's uh, close. Tell people where they can find us. Go ahead. 
You can find me at uh, my main site, Kansas City Cinephile. That's kccinephile.com. Uh, and, of course, also at uh, monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. And uh, we'll have a fun thing. We should talk about this. We've got a fun thing that's going to be debuting at Monster Bash, and that's the Basement Sublet of Horror magazine. Uh, this is something that I've been a contributing writer uh, for since 2014. It's a magazine that's locally produced here in the Kansas City metro area by Joel Sanderson. Joel Sanderson is the man behind Gunther Deadman, the local horror host based out of Lawrence, and the show The Basement Sublet of Horror. I came up with the idea of how about a special edition with focusing on the films of the Memiverse, and it just kind of grew from there. So, uh, in fact, as we record this, and by the time you hear it, the magazine will already be in our grubby little hands, and we'll be taking um, a stack of these uh, of this special edition of the magazine that'll be sold at Monster Bash um, at uh, at the Memiverse table, and uh, it features. Uh, Basically, we, we talk about the entire uh, gambit of films that uh, Christopher R. Mim has done in the last decade. Um, there's, there's a great interview with Christopher Mim and Mitch Gonzalez uh, conducted by Derek from Monster Kid Radio. Uh, award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan is going to be on hand to uh, offer up his thoughts on the, on the films. You've written an article based on the, uh, the Monster of Phantom Lake, the musical, um, and you talk about the film as well. Yeah. Um, I do an article uh, talking about my experience attending the um, Where Skeeto Nazi Hunter film premiere in Minnesota last September. Uh, I've, I haven't seen the magazine. I've seen the proof of it online. Joel does a really good job of putting together this this magazine. And um, the cover is amazing. Oh, the cover. Uh, Dan Rempel is the, is the artist. Uh, he's a local artist, and it's an amazing rendition of Where Skeeto. We'll have more details on this in a month, but the magazine will be uh, for sale. A limited number will be sold at the Memorers table. And following that, uh, I know that it will be available online uh, for either a uh, digital copy or a print-on-demand. And then, uh, again, limited copies will be available Several months from now, but it'll happen very quickly, the Free State Comic Con in Lawrence, Kansas in October, uh, along with, I think, at least one or two other issues of the Basement Subletter of Horror, as well as Sneak Peek, uh, for those of you in the area, as well as uh, out there in podcast land via Facebook. Last fall, I did the uh, Monster Movie Kid, Richard Chamberlain's Guide to the Films of Boris Karloff. Joel is going to be putting together uh, the uh, the sequel of sorts. It'll be the films of Bela Lugosi. And I've already seen the cover for that, and it's pretty cool. So that magazine, we'll be talking about that more once we've seen it. And we'll hype that up on next month's episode as well. Great. And I am found at classichorrors.club and all its social media channels. I was thinking today, I always tell people Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest. I forget about the YouTube channel. If you like trailers... I, I have a YouTube channel uh, where we show those. It, any movie I talk about on the blog or post on Facebook, Twitter, I try to put the trailer on the YouTube channel. So just want to give that a shout out. We both are beginning to embark on the summer box office blockbuster movies, and we'll be reviewing for Boom Howdy or Downright Creepy. And Downright Creepy is, of course, where you find the Fandom Podcast Network and our podcast we should probably mention you can hear us as well 
on uh, the, well, as we record this, the most recent episode of the uh, Nightmare Junkhead podcast. We were invited, uh, a couple of other guys locally here in Kansas City, definitely more contemporary uh, take on, on horror films, but we were invited to partake in, in their uh, In the Mouth of March Madness ongoing series, uh, and we were specific in talking about films from 1977, uh, I don't have the episode number on hand, but it's part of the uh, Phantom Podcast Network feed on iTunes. So uh, if you get our episode that way or if you download it from iTunes that way, uh, you can uh, certainly look up Nightmare Junkhead. And we're on the episode uh, uh, released in uh, late May. And it is, uh, I want to say, episode 79 for some You reason. are correct, sir. And how sad is it that it wasn't 77? Wouldn't that have been that, awesome? That would have been pretty awesome. Oh, yeah, that would have been awesome. It. But uh, a couple of, of great guys, a, a lot of fun recording that. And, uh, and again, a little bit outside of the Classic Chorus Club wheelhouse, but it was fun. And uh, definitely uh, download that episode and check it out. And I think you'll find that that's a pretty cool show that you want to add into your list of of uh, weekly and monthly podcasts to, to take a listen to yep as a good number of other podcasts as well on the phantom podcast network so check that out if there is nothing else i will call an end to the meeting and we'll see everybody next month take care everyone Need look no more We both found what we were looking for With a friend to call my own I'll never be alone And you, my friend